Well, good morning. I'd, uh, I'd like to invite you uh, into this time to be with, with Christ and to be with His Holy Spirit. And, and as you do, uh, open your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Christmas story from, from Matthew's account. Would you, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer again? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to glorify Your name. That's what we want to be about. That's, that's all we want to do today is glorify You. And I pray that, that the message that has been prepared today would do that. I pray that it would glorify You, Father. That those of us who are listening, those of us who are watching at home, that we would not be passive spectators. It's so easy for us to just sit here and hear a message and hopefully walk away uh, you know, with kind of a pep talk of sorts. But Father, I pray that, that You would let and, and use Your Gospel, Your Word, to penetrate our hearts and to change us just a little bit today. If there's something in there, if there's, if there's a hardness in our hearts that needs softening, Father, would You do that? Would we be courageous enough to invite You to do that? That's my hope. That's my, my prayer today, Lord, that You would bless this time together. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us courage to search the depths of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You know, I saw a video this week, not unlike a lot of videos that I've seen over the last, you know, eight, nine months, whatever it's been. And uh, it showed a woman who was boarding a plane to travel. And as she went and she sat down in her seat, Uh, The flight attendant noticed that she wasn't wearing a mask, and so she spoke up and said, excuse me, miss, you're going to need to to put a mask on. And at first the woman pretended like she didn't hear or or know that that the flight attendant was speaking to her. And so the flight attendant spoke up again a little bit more loudly, a little bit more sternly, and said, miss, you're going to need to put a mask on to be on this flight. To which point the lady looked up, finally acknowledging that she was being spoken to, and basically said, I refuse. The flight attendant looked at her and said, you refuse? You understand that you agreed to this when you bought a ticket. You agreed to this when you checked in at the airport today. She said, I refuse. So the flight attendant looked at her and said, okay, you're going to need to come with me. You're going to have to be removed from this flight. And again, the woman looked at her and said, no, I refuse. So the flight attendant walked away, made a phone call, And a few moments later, two police officers came in very nicely, very politely, and said, ma'am, you're going to need to come with us. And and they escorted her from the plane. And this time, she she thought wisely enough to to not put up a fight and make more of a scene than she'd already made. Now, I, I know the conversation around wearing masks around our country has been a contentious one. But the issue of masks is really not even my point in bringing all of this up. The point, or really the question, is this. That when you look at the human heart, what is it deep down in the human heart that when faced with another person's authority over us, or power over us, or whatever word you want to call it, that we we dig our heels in, we plant our flag, and we refuse? We refuse. What is that? What's going on in our heart when we do that? And more importantly, what, what does that have to do 
with the message of Christmas. Well, in the context of the relationship between power and surrender in the Christmas story, which is what we've been talking about, it turns out quite a bit. Uh, If you're just joining us for this Christmas series, we are in week two of a three-week series that we are calling Christmas the Power of Surrender. And we kicked off last week's message with a look at the power to surrender, a, a look at the stories of various characters in the Christmas story or Christmas account, both in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels, that in order for Mary to be Mary, there had to be this spirit of surrender in her. That when told of her coming pregnancy and all the stuff that went with that, she was able to say, hey, I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. And in order for Joseph to be Joseph, there had to be a spirit of surrender in him. That when told in a dream not to divorce Mary, something he absolutely was planning on doing, wanted to do, he was told to stay with her and support her even as any logical person would assume that she'd been unfaithful to him. And yet he listened and he endured the shame. He endured the ridicule to raise this child with her as, as, as outcasts, as ostracized people in their culture and society. And the same was true to, to varying degrees for lots of people. It was true of the shepherds in the field who, who went and told everybody who they'd seen. It was true for the magi who traveled for countless months because they saw a star in the sky. I mean, we're talking 18 months, 24 months according to some people. And it was true for so many others who who let this birth moment in their story and in their lives totally reshape who they are and what their life was about. You know, surrender or, or laying down self is at the core of all of their stories. And it would be easy to assume that, that surrender is just, is just true of all the characters when you're telling this Christmas story. Why? Because that's kind of what Christmas feels like. It's, it's warm and it's fuzzy. Like we, we love that about Christmas. Everyone does the right thing. Everyone surrenders to this King. It's meek. It's mild. It's this story of perpetual hope. I was listening in the car this morning as I was driving in to the silent night. I mean, that's the vibe that you get. Silent night, holy night, all is calm. Everything's great. Christmas is when the world seems right. And yet, surrender is not at the core of every person's story in the Christmas account this morning. And so I want to look at these stories together. I want to, I want to ask a question. What compels us as people not to surrender? And as we get started, I want, to, I want you to consider the story of King Herod. I don't know if you know much about King Herod. King Herod, ironically enough, wasn't really even a king in the, in the usual or typical sense. Usually when someone is a king, you know, there's somebody who has total authority, total power over the land that is in their kingdom. And that wasn't really true of King Herod. Herod was actually appointed to be king. He was named king. Why? Because he had this undying loyalty to Rome, to Caesar. And so he was crowned. He was appointed by them as king of Judea. And when you hear that, I want you to be hearing king of the Jews. 
Because that's how he saw himself. That's who he was. But make no mistake, Herod was an arm of the Roman Empire. But this appointment actually made some sense as far as Rome was concerned because Herod was both loyal to them and he, he was part of an Idumean family that had converted to Judaism some generations back. Well, what does Idumean mean? Well, it's a fancy way of saying that he was an Edomite. Okay, what's an Edomite? Well, that's a fancy way of saying that he descended from Esau. You remember, you go way back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, of course, became the, the son of promise, and, and God changes his name to Israel. And he had this brother, Esau. And that is who Herod actually descended from. And his family converted to Judaism at some point uh, before he was born. And so, if you know anything about Herod at all, you know he wasn't just Herod. He was actually Herod the Great. And for good reason. I mean, during his reign, the, the, the territory where he was king, where he was leader, they prospered economically. There were, there were no wars to speak of. There was, there was relative peace in the land. Additionally, this was somebody who was known for, for numerous impressive building projects and accomplishments over his 33 years in power. He built something like seven fortresses. He built bigger and better walls. He built theaters. He built amphitheaters. He built palaces and harbors and gardens and mausoleums. He even built synagogues. Like That's what kind of king this was. He was somebody who was all in on this Jewish state. He built synagogues. And of course, his crowning achievement of all was this grand refurbishment of the temple in Jerusalem, which transformed a modest temple into something to truly behold. I mean, if the temple that, that he inherited was like a Honda Civic, well, he turned it into a Rolls Royce. I mean, no cost was spared. In fact, the foundation of that temple still stands to this day. If you were to travel to Jerusalem right now, Muhammad you know, grew up around there. There was, on top, there's a mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It's got a gold dome. You've probably seen it in pictures of, of Jerusalem. And at the western wall, the Wailing Wall, you will often see many practicing Jewish men and women there weeping and wailing and praying over this temple. By all the common standards of worldly success, Herod was this competent, powerful, effective leader in Judea. And certainly, having come from a practicing Jewish family, Herod's support for the Messiah would have been immense. Right? I mean, this is somebody who absolutely would welcome the Messiah, right? Let's read. Let's read Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1 together, and let's find out. The text says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, 
for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exact, the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And so yeah, look, look no further than verse 12 here. Or verse 11. Herod, immense support for the Messiah. Like, I just want to go worship Him too. I want to do the same thing you guys are doing. But in fact, we find out in verse 12, He has very, very different plans and motives altogether. It says, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there! until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You see this this sounds brutal. And it is. It, it is brutal. But then again, despite all the apparent good that this Herod the Great is credited with doing, despite all the economic success, all the walls, all the building projects, all the pandering to the religious establishment of his day, behind the scenes, this, this Herod was a much different man than he was portrayed. Because he was a man who was singularly obsessed with staying in power. A man who, who killed people in the courts. Even killed members of his own family in order to ensure that any lack of loyalty, any threat to his power would be squelched. And now the very thing that should elicit praise from a practicing Jewish person the birth of the Messiah is the very thing that compels him to do the most dramatic or drastic thing he's done yet. Kill every boy born in Bethlehem who is two years of age or younger. Tim Keller talks about this. He says that based on, on population estimates and so on of Bethlehem, this is probably involving about 20 or 30 different boys who were killed innocently because of this order. And yet, this was so commonplace for the kind of man that Herod was that it didn't even really merit mention in the course of history that Herod was willing to devastate an entire community, every family who'd given birth to a boy recently. And for what? 
Why would he do that? Because of the mere fear of a loss of power and a blatant refusal to surrender any of it. He's asking himself when the Magi come, like, who is this king of the Jews that you speak of? I am the king of the Jews. I am. A couple of years ago, the European Journal of, of Work and Organization Psychology did a research study where they looked at the effect of people in places of power when they fear they might lose it. And this might involve people who had attained some degree of power in the workplace, but who feared they might be fired or, or demoted. It might also involve people who attained power in an organization or, or even in a place of government who, who feared some form of removal from their position. The power usually takes one of, of three forms, one or more of three forms. There's three ways that, that power manifests itself. It, it manifests itself in force, the ability to control through physical or emotional or psychological means. It manifests itself in influence, which is the ability to control through things like relationships and circumstances and charisma. And it manifests itself in authority, which is the ability to control through, through power structure or through legal means. But I think the most compelling bit of information that they found is that when people of power find that they are susceptible to losing it, or that they fear that they might lose it. They said there's a measurable, uh, huge increase in stress levels that spike. And, it, and that stress makes them likely to turn to outrageous measures in order to maintain their power. They found that, that those people who were, who were in that position were more likely to take risks. They were more likely to allocate shared resources to themselves. They were more likely to prioritize their own interest over group goals, and they were more likely to withhold valuable information from other people, to exclude those who were highly skilled, and to prevent others from having influence over the, the group task, whatever it might be. They, they, they cloister themselves and make sure that nobody else can have, have a voice in the situation. And all of this was intensified the more competitive the climate got. If there was a competitor or competitors in that situation, then all of these feelings, all of these actions intensified. In other words, Herod's behavior was, was classic behavior from a powerful figure facing a potential loss of power. And he was willing to go to incredible extremes to make sure that this, this threat to his power was eradicated. And he would have succeeded Except for, for one big factor, that God is always more powerful. I'm going to say that again. God is always more powerful. And maybe this doesn't surprise you. Maybe this is exactly what you'd expect from a king, or exactly what you'd expect from a political leader, or a boss, or somebody who has authority. Maybe you expect people like that to do whatever it takes. Because certainly Herod was the only one who had something to lose in this Christmas story, right? I mean, he, he was the only one who, who could be called king of the Jews. He was the only one who had power that might be threatened, right? Well, I'm not so sure. You know, I saw something this week as I was studying the text that I've never seen before. 
that I'd never paid a lot of attention to before. And it's something that, that as I spent more time with it this week, I became increasingly convinced the more I looked at it that Herod did not stand alone as a figure who was completely surrendered to power or a person who, who acted in, in potentially risky ways or outrageous ways to eliminate the competition. We already read about somebody else doing something similar too, possibly. Did you catch it? Look back at, at verse 3 again in Matthew chapter 2. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. But what comes next? And all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. What on earth does that mean? And i got to tell you, I spent hours, hours searching and researching and Googling and reading and, and, and trying to see what others had to say about these five words. And, and frankly, most commentators barely even acknowledged that these words were in the text. And when they did, it was usually only to suggest that all Jerusalem was disturbed because they feared Herod. Like, you know like when you grow up in a family and there's somebody who, who wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and they're on a rampage for whatever reason, like nobody understands why, and everyone just kind of looks at each other like, man, what's their problem? <laughs> you know, everyone does everything they can to just stay clear of that person. Well, that's essentially what commentators chalk this comment up to. They're saying like, uh-oh, Herod is mad and, and we should stay out of his way because well, it's Herod. There's no telling what he might do in this situation. But i got to tell you, as I sat with this text this week, and I studied it, and I considered it, and I looked at context, I don't think that's what these words mean, like at all. You know, when we speak about places of power, we, we often refer to them by their city name. Like, in Sacramento, did you hear about what they just said or did? Or, you know, in D.C., did you hear about what, what just happened? Well, that's similar to how I read this verse, when it says, in all Jerusalem with him. You know, I think our biggest clue to what this means comes in the very next verse, in verse 4. Because it says, when, when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they, they referenced Micah chapter 5. They said, well, you know, the prophecy says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judea, and you're by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then the Magi come along, or he comes back to the Magi, and he says, well, hey, go and search for him, and when you find him, like, let me know, because I want to come and, and worship him too. In other words, Herod leaves the Magi. He goes over and he consults with the chief priests and with the, the teachers of the law. And then he comes back to the Magi, and he has a conversation, or, or he, he shares with them a lie. Well, hey, I want to go worship him too. And I'm not going to say this emphatically. I'm not 100% convinced, but I'm, I'm fairly persuaded right now that it is my hunch from studying this text that the Jewish religious leaders, and not just the king, were also possibly conspiring to eliminate this Messiah figure. This person who was most assuredly, or who most assuredly would command all of their power and all of the respect that they were receiving for himself. And like King Herod, they too were not willing to part with their power. In fact, in Anchor Bible Dictionary, if, you, if you've ever read Anchor Bible, it's one of the, one of the top resources available for people who, who teach 
and preach God's Word. It's a great resource. In their article on King Herod, they said this. They said, you know, Herod exercised complete control over his realm by dominating all key institutions. No matter was beyond his scrutiny. The highest tribunal, the Sanhedrin, whatever its composition and authority in the previous era, was now merely a rubber stamp for the king's wishes. That in effect, this judicial body was, was similar to the privy councils of other Hellenistic kings. They were summoned whenever it suited the king, and this group consisted primarily, if not exclusively, they said, of Herod, his friends, his relatives, and he would convene them whenever he needed to to condemn like uh, the wife of Pheroras, for example, and later Antipater. And they continue. They talk about the high priesthood. They said the high priesthood was another institution manipulated by Herod for his own purposes. The Herod realized from the outset that control of this office was crucial for a successful reign. And it is for this reason that he immediately installed his longtime friend, Hananel of Babylonia, as high priest. I've talked about it before. You've heard the saying, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. In 1991, a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi, who was a Burmese diplomat, an author, and a Nobel Prize winner, gave an acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize. And she revised that quote in a way that I think is more accurate. She said this, It is not power that corrupts, but fear. A fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it. And when you reflect on the Christmas story, there were those who found the power to surrender. These are the people we talked about last week, the, the Marys and Josephs and Shepherds and Magis and, and more. But there were also those who chose a different path, who followed a different path. People who had surrendered all of themselves, all of their heart, having power. We're talking about Herod. We're talking about the chief priests. We're talking about the teachers of the law. And I'm sure many, many more who we don't even you know, know of. And so as Jesus entered the world and He began His ministry, it's those people that we find Christ targeting and rebuking and correcting so many times. These are the people He's calling brood of vipers. These are the people He's overturning tables in the temple courts of the money changers for. These are people who nailed Him to a cross and crucified Him. The religious people. And all of this began with a king who did all the right stuff on the outside. All the right stuff for people to see. He built synagogues. He built a temple. A magnificent temple to God. He surrounded himself with all the religious people. Like All of this passed the sniff test. All of this passed the eyeball test. But when Emmanuel came, when God with us came, it was that same king and all those religious leaders who claimed to worship him, all Jerusalem with him, who moved immediately to what? Kill him. Church, I want you to see who Jesus is. 
Like so powerful was this baby lying in a manger that the powers at be in his day literally would stop at nothing to make sure that his power never threatened their power. Stopped at nothing. You know, there is something deep within the human heart that when confronted with another's authority, when confronted with another's power over them, people will do just like the lady on the plane did at the beginning of this, this message. They will dig their heels in and they will refuse. Refuse to bend a knee to another. They will refuse to surrender. And I've got to tell you, as I think about 2020, as 2020 draws to a close, it, it is that heart condition that I, that I see so prominently in people all around me, frankly, probably even in myself, that we can be so obsessed with, with whatever degree of power or of authority or of autonomy that we have or think we have, that we will allow ourselves to act or behave in egregious ways in order to preserve it. And standing there in the background for all of us is, is Christ, the Messiah, God with us. And i got to tell you, He's way, way less interested in, in the synagogues or the temples that we built. He is in the condition of what He cares about. Keller says this, he says, the, the full teaching of the Bible is that the source of the world's evil is every human Every human heart. There's a handful of us in the room right now. Every human heart is the source of the world's evil. He says King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in this sense, a picture of us all. Do you realize that? you realize that? I, I know it's easy to, to villainize and to see that in other people. It's easy to see that with a maskless lady on a plane. It's easy to see that with people of other political persuasions. It's, it's easy to see that in people who live and believe in different lifestyles than we live in. But do you realize that about yourself? Do you realize that's also in your heart? Do you realize that Herod's story isn't a story that's, that's reserved just for the powers and the principalities. You realize it's true. You and of me all the same. What do people do when they fear losing power? You remember? The journal that we referenced earlier said they take unnecessary risks. They hoard resources. They prioritize their own interests. They withhold information. And they do what, what you do. Or what I do, I guess, when our autonomy is threatened. And so if you, if you look at your heart, and you're honest, you're going to see those same tendencies even in you. Paul said in, in, in Romans chapter 8, that those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. But the mind governed by the flesh is death, 
But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. In other words, those who cannot lay themselves down, who cannot surrender their own power, who cannot surrender their own authority, their own autonomy for their lives. Paul says they cannot please God. In fact, they are unable, he says, to surrender to God's law. Unable. I think Keller sums it up better than I ever could. He says that shows us one of the hidden truths of Christmas. But this dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance or even hatred of the claims of God on our lives. What do we do? He says we create gods of our liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals Himself as our absolute King. And if the Lord born at Christmas is the true God, then no one will seek for Him unless our hearts are supernaturally changed to want Him and seek Him. He says, where is the true King? Well, that question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart. Since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. And so we may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to to put God in the position of, of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous rather than serving Him unconditionally. Or, he says, we may flee from religion. We may become atheists and, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, he says, we're expressing our natural hostility to the Lordship of the true King. i got to tell you, I've known a lot of people in my life, you probably have too, uh, who at the first sign or the first call to lay themselves down to submit, to surrender to another, will do everything in their power. I mean, everything in their power to gain back that power. That the, the people who care more about being in charge than being in Christ. So the question remains, where's the true King? Or maybe the better question is, who? Who is the true King of your life? And so this morning, as we move one step closer to Christmas, that story of a baby in a manger calls you to honestly search your heart for the answer to that question. That when you look deep within, do you see Mary? Do you see Joseph? Do you see somebody who who finds the power to surrender their entire lives, lay them down, and serve God, serve Christ? Do you see Herod? Do you see somebody who digs in, who plants their flag, who has who's surrendered their entire heart to being in power, to being in control, to, to refusing the checks and balances that come our way? The truth is probably somewhere in between, or a little bit of both. But the goal is certainly to be more Mary and Joseph and to recognize that the Herod parts of our heart so that we can eradicate them. In 1778, a man named William Billings wrote a hymn. 
was called Methinks I See a Heavenly Host. I didn't realize Methinks was a real word that was used 240 years ago, but here it is. This is verse 2. He says, Lay down your crooks and quit your flocks to Bethlehem repair. And let your wandering steps be squared by yonder shining star. But it's this last part that I want you to see. Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable. See your God ended on the straw. Church, as Christmas approaches, when you think about the manger, what do you see? Do you see your saving Christ, your Messiah, the Lord of your life, the King of kings? Or do you see opposition? what's happening in your own heart? Do you see somebody who takes away all your freedoms, all your desires, all your wants? Do you see resistance to who you truly want to be? So I've got I to invite you. If there's a part of you this morning who's heard this message, I'm being honest, I, I, I feel and I see a lot of Herod in my heart. There's a lot of things I've done to try to hold on to power in some, some role that I have or, or power even over my own life. I've never truly laid all of myself down. I've got to tell you, number one, you're not alone. That, that's, that's true for me. It's probably true of all of us here. But number two, man, Christ came to save us. That's what the Christmas story is all about. He came to save us. And He invites you to cast your burdens, to cast all of your fears onto Him and let Him carry those because He cares for you. He came to go to the cross to lay His life down for you. To be King of your life. And if you'll invite Him and allow Him to do that today, would you email us questions at lakemercedchurch.com And if today's message was meaningful to you, if it challenged you, if it encouraged you, if, if it did anything meaningful in your heart or in your life, would you mind sharing this with somebody who needs to hear it? Click that share button, put it on social media, send a text message, do whatever you feel moved to do. But maybe somebody needs to hear a message that would encourage them and challenge them and shape them today. Would you do that? God bless you, my friends. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in for this live service. And we'll uh, turn things over to Nathaniel for a song, and then we'll have some announcements, so stay tuned.